Thanks for listening to the Sugar Hill Church podcast. To hear more sermons and to find out more about our church, please visit sugarhillchurch.com. Today we're continuing a series on red letter living. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing's ever occurred to Jesus? Jesus never walked through heaven and seen us make a bad decision or a mistake or some silly something in our life and look down from heaven and go, whoa, didn't see that one coming. He never had to do that. I mean, Jesus has never been shocked by the shocking things that we do. I mean, he, he never has had to look at us and go, wow, how could they have done that? Because he knows us. He, he knows us better than we know ourselves. It happened to a fella in Luke chapter 19, Jesus knew Zacchaeus. He knew that Zacchaeus had robbed people blind, had profited from some significant Bernie Madoff unethical behavior, yet Jesus wasn't shocked. He didn't offer Zacchaeus a correction. He offered Zacchaeus a relationship. If you've got your little uh, sermon handouts, you notice this week I gave you fill in the blanks. I've gotten some feedback from some of you. You say, you don't give us enough information on that. And then some of you say, you give us too much information. And so I decided I'd give you a cross this week. And for those of you that like fill in the blanks, if I stay, if I stay with my notes, you'll actually be able to fill them out. That doesn't happen often. So if you don't get your blanks filled in, don't send me an email. I mean, Jesus knew Zacchaeus had, was, was just a messed up life. Jesus knew it. There was no shock to it. He, he offered relationship rather than correction. You know, you know what I have found to be great fun in, in this human life? It, it is so much fun to find what's wrong with somebody else. Don't you find that easy? Can you believe they wore that? Can you believe he said that? Can you believe they did that? Mm-mm, girl. I mean, seriously, don't you find it easy to find fault with people? I mean, it's, it's everywhere, isn't it? I mean, especially in the church. I mean, you couldn't get six feet in this place without finding something wrong with it. I mean, let's face it. I, I haven't been up here five minutes and you found something wrong. I mean, there's a lot of fault going on here. But, but we find it easy. And the, and the world looked at a guy like Zacchaeus and said, you are a rotten, cheating, liar, thieving, stealing scumbag. That's what you are. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what he knew, and that's what he was. And Jesus came along, though, and you know what Jesus didn't do? is Jesus didn't look at him and say, let me tell you what's wrong with you. Do you know people in your life that can't wait to tell you what's wrong with you? you do you have some? I've got some of those in my life. They, just, they cannot wait to tell me what's wrong with me. I know, lady, this is no joke. You can't make this stuff up. I, I'm walking in to the 930 service, and I'm, I've been out there yakking and talking with people, and Bobby's already started, so I came in late. And so I'm, I'm walking in, and this lady stopped me at that door right behind the camera back there. And she, she kind of grabbed my sweater, and she said, Pastor Chuck, yes, ma'am. She said, we need to talk. Okay, okay. And she said, and when we do, it's not going to be good. Well, bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. I just can't wait to get with you. It's like Animal House. Thank you, sir. May I have another? I mean, really, I thought, well, let's just bless the Lord on a Sunday morning. That'll get you ready to preach. She can't wait to tell me what's wrong. And I get that. I mean, it's part of the human DNA. It's all, and by the way, it's all part of this territory. It's, you know, I'm cool with all that, but 
Jesus didn't come to offer correction. He came to offer a relationship. I mean, here's what he said in verse 5 in Luke 19. Come down, Zacchaeus. I'm staying at your house tonight. You know what that statement did? It sent shockwaves through the religious world. The church people said, what? You're deep. Do you know who he is? That's what they're asking the Son of God. Do you know who he is? Do you know all the things he's done wrong? Do you know what a rotten scumbag he is? He's a liar, a cheat, a thief. This guy's no good. You're going to be with him? You're going to his house? Really? See, it primarily shocked church folks. But now watch this. The relationship that Jesus offered Zacchaeus changed Zacchaeus' world. But not just Zacchaeus' world, but countless hundreds, maybe thousands, that watched what happened, accepted what happened, and then saw the change, not only in Zacchaeus' lives, but in theirs as a result of it. Come down, Zacchaeus. I'm staying at your house tonight. I think the most fascinating thing about Jesus' red letters to Zacchaeus was this. They were grounded in love, not grounded in malice. They were grounded in forgiveness, not grounded in fault. They were grounded in grace, not grounded in grumbling. You see, while Jesus over here, while Jesus is doing all of this cool change in Zacchaeus' life, over here, all of the church folks are grumbling. In, in, in the Greek, here's what grumbling sounds like. Have you ever heard that? It sounds a little bit like Charlie Brown's school teacher, doesn't it? Have you ever noticed that grumblers seem to never be near where Jesus is doing his work? You ever notice that? I've never seen somebody busy about being with Jesus find time, a reason, or a heart to spend time on the grumble. But you know what I've also noticed is in the world today, you can draw a hard line right between the grumblers and those that are about the work of Jesus. You know, I find somebody who can find fault with everything. You know what I know immediately about that person? I know what you're thinking. Well, they're a negative person. Well, duh. You know what I really find out? They hadn't spent a whole lot of time with Jesus. You spend a whole lot of time with Jesus. You don't have a whole lot of time to grumble. You spend a whole lot of time over here where Jesus is changing lives and, and making old things new and, and, and replacing and changing hearts and, and doing something fresh in people's lives. I found that there's a whole bunch of people over here that are looking at what Jesus is doing and saying, yeah, but. Luke chapter 19 says in verse 5, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and he called him by name. He said, Zacchaeus, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly came down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy, but the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. And listen to these next two words. They grumbled. He's gone to hang out with those people. You know what he should be doing? He ought to be over here teaching a discipleship class on Wednesday night. Meanwhile, he's going to the house of a sinner, a notorious sinner, a scumbag. You know what he ought to do? He ought to be teaching master life, going deeper. And he's hanging out with a thief, a liar, a robber. Hmm. Grumbling's going on. 
I like this next word. Verse 8 starts off, meanwhile. By the way, you know what meanwhile means? Over here, the grumbling goes on. And meanwhile, Jesus is doing something cool over here. Which leads me to ask you a question. Which camp are you in this morning? Or, whoa, look at that. How cool is that? Which camp are you in? By the way, it all depends on which camp you want to be in. You get to pick. It's all up to you. Zacchaeus got to pick. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus, in verse 8, stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, that's the key word, Lord, and if I've cheated people on their taxes, I'll give them back four times as much. And Jesus responded in verse 9, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. Your pastor owned speech of that earlier, but we get confused. We think what happened was, well, Zacchaeus changed what he did. As a result, Jesus the Lord offered him salvation. So what happened was Zacchaeus cleaned his act up, and then Jesus gave him eternity. But that's not what happened. What happened was Jesus came and was with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus recognized him as Lord. His heart changed as a result, his mind changed. As a result of his heart and his mind being changed toward the things of Jesus, his actions then changed. The actions didn't come first, the actions came last. As in all things in red letters, it's a matter of the heart. Jesus didn't really concern himself with Zacchaeus being a cheat and a thief and a liar. He concerned himself with his heart and the need for him to change. As a result, salvation came to that home. If you were listening to the red letters of Jesus, here's what you heard. I know, Zacchaeus, you made a mess of your life. I know you've hurt people. I know you're a cheat, a thief, a liar, a pride-filled, egotistical little man. But I love you. And if I got a better way for you to live, let's work on your heart. See, that's what we know as a red-letter relationship. How about you? You need that relationship today? Or maybe you need to refresh that relationship today? We'll skip over to John chapter 4. Jesus knew there was a Samaritan woman at the well who had been married and divorced five times five times. Let's just say relationships weren't her thing. Five times. You think there's some grumbling going on about her? Jesus knew about her current hookup and how messed up and entangled she was with this guy she was living with. But watch this, Jesus wasn't repulsed by it. You see, we have to understand that Samaritans of Jesus' day were treated by the religious community the way gay people are treated by most Christians today. By the way, I, I just repulsed a lot of you. Don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not taking homosexuality light. What I am saying is this. If you're here today and you're living in a gay lifestyle, Jesus might go home to your house today. And you know what we would say? Can you believe he did that? He should, have gone to, he should have gone to the chairman of the deacon's house. You know why Jesus didn't go there? Because he didn't want to hear grumbling. 
He's going to hang out where he can save people and change hearts and love. Go hang out there. You say, Chuck, do do you believe there are openly gay people who worship at this church? Yeah, of course there are. Let me just stop and say, and if, if you know an openly gay couple, I wish you'd invite them to church. Bring it on. I'm neither afraid, fearful, angry. You know what? They need Jesus just like I do. Why not be loved by Jesus? And if you're in the grumbling camp and say, well, I, just, I don't think that's the kind of church I need to be part of. There's a hundred dead churches around here. Pick any one of them. I mean, seriously, come on. Jesus said to people on a hillside one day, listen, if you're you're not going to love me and you're not going to walk with me and you're going to take this seriously, leave. You know what's happened to the American church today? We care so much about how many people come into a room so we can count nickels and noses and get excited about that. We've forgotten that we need to raise a bar so high that we say, Jesus matters and let's make a big, big deal about Jesus. Because it doesn't matter how many people are in here if we're not living like it out there. Jesus wasn't repulsed. None of this kept Jesus away and kept him from offering her living water. Maybe Jesus is calling us as Christ followers, as Christians, as church folks. Maybe he's calling us to be less like the Pharisees and more like him, and we're just not unshockable. In John chapter 4, we read, the, we read these red letters of Jesus. Beginning in verse 4, he said he had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar and near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Every time I read this story, you know what I have this picture of? I picture it's July in Orlando, and it's 94 degrees with 82% humidity, and I've just followed two six-year-olds all through Adventureland at Disney World. My shirt is wringing wet and sweat is dripping from my chin. And here's what they're saying. Can we ride on Mr. Toad's wild ride one more time? And I'm thinking, shoot me now. But if you do, don't miss. Get it right here. Jesus sat down. He was weary. He was tired. And he just... Oh. He sat down, and about that time, in verse 7, soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. Do you hear the graciousness in his voice? It wasn't woman, give me a drink. It wasn't slave, give me a drink. It wasn't pour me a drink. You know what he said? Please, may I have a drink? You know, I think one of the greatest things about living like Jesus is learning this life of graciousness. Boy, if there's anything I'd love for people to know about our church is that we're a gracious people. May I please have a drink? He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy food. In verse 9, we read, The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Do you hear her attitude? And Jesus replied in verse 10, If you only knew the gift God has for you... And who you were speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But, sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? 
And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he? In other words, how can you offer something better than the world? You don't have a rope. You don't have a bucket. You can't even get to where the water is. How are you going to help me? You don't have a checkbook, Jesus. You can't write me a check. You're not my boss, Jesus. You can't give me a better job. You're not my spouse, Jesus. You can't make my marriage better. Hmm. Jesus says in verse 13, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And some of you are thinking, you know, I don't want anything bubbling in me. I, 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 no, I, I, no, not, no bubbles. You know what Jesus is really saying is, is this. He's saying, if you'll trust me, if you'll live for me, if you'll accept me into your heart as Lord, if you'll accept me as Savior, if you'll take everything I offer, including forgiveness and love and graciousness and kindness and fulfillment and contentment, if you'll, if you'll accept life more abundant in this world and life eternal in heaven, if you'll accept that living water from me within you every time life becomes difficult, it will well up in love and joy and it will cover your heart and it will take over your soul and you won't be downcast and you won't give up on life and you, you won't just give up on a relationship and you won't live in sin, but this will well up inside of you and it will cover your soul and bathe you in the coolness and the freshness of living water. And Jesus is saying, this is what I offer you. It's so much more than a drink. And let it well up deep from within you. Let it cover your soul. Let it capture you. Let it become a tsunami through your heart. I love this in verse 15. Please, sir. Do you see the change in her attitude? Please, sir, the woman said, Give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. I'll never forget as a kid, when I, when I gave my life to Christ, Bill Glass was a defensive end for the Cleveland Browns, a massive man. And I was sitting on the front row, and we, we were singing that old song, I Surrender All. And, and, and he said, so if you want Jesus today, you can have him today. And those massive hands stretched out. And I sat there, and I said, me, me, I want that. And they did the old school invitation where we, we walked forward, and I walked right past my pastor, and I walked straight up to Bill Glass, this massive man. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And I'll never forget, instead of grasping my hand with those big old hands of his, he literally put his hands up underneath my arms and picked me up and looked at me face to face, and he said, Jesus is here for you. You know what Jesus is doing for this lady whose life is a mess? This lady who has muddied everything, he's, he's literally looking at her in the face and he's saying, I'm here for you. I wish I could give all of you a mirror today and you were looking in the mirror and you could hear these words. Jesus is saying, I'm here for you. I love you. I don't care how muddied, I don't care how messy your life is. I don't care how you've made poor decisions. I'm here for you. And then in verse 23, it says, but the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now. Jesus says, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. She's getting it now. And then Jesus blows her mind. I mean, it is face-melting, mind-blowing truth. And he says, I'm him. I am the Messiah. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there for that conversation? 
Wouldn't you have loved to have seen her face when she looked into the face of Jesus and said, get out of here. How cool. You're, you're serving me. You're here for me. You're in my presence. I got to do something about this. Uh-oh, verse 27. Just then his disciples came back, and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? Again, grumbling starts. And who did it start with? The disciples, the churchiest of all church people. What, Lord, do you, do you know who she is? Five and shacked up with a guy now. What in the world, Jesus? What are you thinking? Watch this. The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. So the people came streaming from the village to see him. I don't want to be in the business here of pointing my finger at you, but let me just look and see at a handful of empty chairs here. Clearly, we didn't run from here last week or the week before and go tell the village about the Messiah we knew because people didn't stream back to hear about him, did they? Ouch. Ouch. Again, red letters that speak to a meaningful relationship that not only changed this woman whose life was in a mess, but the disciples who were shocked that Jesus gave her the time of day and the countless others that watched her life change happen before their eyes. She became a worshiper in spirit and in truth. You know what's interesting? I don't think she ever showed up at the synagogue again and said, you know, I just can't believe we sing that way. I don't think she ever showed up again and said, you know, I can't believe we use screens and not hymnals. I, can't, I don't believe she ever showed up and said, you know, can you believe we have chairs and not pews? I don't believe she ever showed up and said, I wish they'd stop asking for money. I don't think she ever showed up and said, you know, I can't believe the service went 20 minutes long today. I don't believe she ever showed up and said, would they just stop asking for workers in a preschool? I don't think she ever showed up and said, well, you know what, I can't believe we got to help those kids go to that mission trip again. There's there's another story in Luke chapter 7. Luke tells of a time Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus to dinner. This one's really interesting. Jesus and his disciples are reclined at the table in Luke chapter 7 verse 36 along with Simon's religious friends who are skeptical about Jesus, mainly because he showed more love for sinners than he did their rules, their law. But Jesus had made it clear this wasn't true. He came to fulfill the intent of the law They invited Jesus here to judge him, not to learn from him. You see, when you look for something wrong, you're going to find it. You come looking for something wrong, you're going to find it. And that's what they did. Now, Middle Eastern dining culture at the time, and that, 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 that style consisted of about a one foot high table. And, and Jesus and the boys were reclining on a pillow, feet stretched out. And, and the, the culture of the day would have said this, that when Jesus walked in the room, the host, Simon, a Pharisee, would have washed his feet. Remember, he's walked in either a strap of leather underneath his feet or barefoot through those dusty, hot, messy streets of Jerusalem all day. Uh, He's dealt with the uh, current emissions of the vehicles of that day walking through the streets. And so his feet are kind of gross. So when you came into a home and you reclined and put your feet in front of the face of somebody else at dinner, what would you want your host to do? Wash your feet, right? As the meal goes on, a woman crashes the party. 
Now, first of all, in that culture, in that time, she shouldn't have been there. More importantly, this is a woman that the whole city knows is an immoral woman. We know this woman to be uh, somebody that clearly has given herself away in a way that would be unbecoming by anybody's standards, and she kind of sheepishly makes her way over, and she stands behind Jesus. And Luke makes sure in verse 37, he tells us this is a woman who's lived a sinful lifestyle. And she didn't just have a few slip-ups. Now, I want you to get this. This gal had made a life out of loose deviances, and everybody knew it. Her dirty laundry was just public knowledge. All the world knew her as a tramp. Everybody did. Her whole life, she'd been judged and condemned by these religious people. So to go into the house of her tormentors had to have taken great courage, the kind of courage that only comes when you have nowhere else to go and no one else to turn to. And that's the kind of courage it took her to walk into the home of a Pharisee who had looked down his nose and pointed his bony finger at her without offering her love, maybe for years upon years. And yet there she stood. And the question I think I would ask is why? And the answer I'd give is because that's where Jesus was. There was nowhere else to turn. She'd made a mess of her life. She'd made poor decisions all her life. And there she stood. And why there? Because that's where Jesus was. Now, the story gets pretty interesting. She's there because there's hope in Jesus for this messy, muddy life. Hearing he had come near, this unstoppable force welled up inside of her, drew her to her feet, and she went into this home, and she stood in the presence of Jesus, and hope burst through the dam of the pain that had driven her mud-slinging behavior, and she just began to weep. She began to cry, and she fell on her knees, and as she fell on her knees there, she fell down at the feet of Jesus as he reclined by the table, and as she began to weep, it wasn't just little puddles, it was crocodile tears that poured down her cheek and dripped off of her chin and poured onto the feet of Jesus and the dirt became mud and the mud began to wash onto the floor of Simon's home and as it did she took her long hair and brought it back around her shoulder and began to wipe his feet and reached into her ratty old purse and brought out a little jar of oil and perfume and poured it on her feet on Jesus' feet and began to massage his feet and kiss his feet and clean his feet and, and make sure he was comfortable and all the while weeping uncontrollably that there she was in her sin wretched, dying, absolutely hopeless. And there he was, the one who could offer her forgiveness and hope and joy and forever. And she was broken before her Lord. All the while, I believe Jesus. I don't think he ever once looked at her. I I think Jesus' eyes remain focused on the Pharisees around the table knowing what was in their hearts. He looked into the eyes as they stared back at him with the how dare you's. Do you know who she is? I can't believe you're allowing the sinner to be in your presence. It's a little bit like if a known prostitute came into this house of worship today and suddenly needed and found Jesus and came to this altar and wept How many of us would come put our arms around her and love her into a relationship with Jesus or how many of us would be repulsed by it and look at her and say, well, you made your bed. You did the crime. You pay the time. You know what? You you should have done this years ago. Her tears landing 
on Jesus' feet, her hair wiping the perfume and the oil there. Simon couldn't take it anymore, and he, this outrageous, scandalous scene had proven his point. In, in chapter 7, verse 39, he mutters to himself and to his more respectable pharisaical guests, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She is a sinner. Mm, yeah. In other words, if Jesus was truly a prophet, he would, he would know about her scandalous sin. He would be shocked. But, but Jesus did know, and Jesus wasn't shocked. Now, you've got to understand how, what a controversial situation this is. If this happened in our church, it would probably be the last week for me to be here. But you see, why didn't this shock Jesus like it would us? Well, because Jesus looks at the heart. It's all about the heart. Jesus confronted the unloving hearts of his host and his friends while this woman demonstrates a heart overflowing with love. And Jesus, in verse 40, says, Simon, I got something to say to you. I, 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 can you imagine? Simon, calm your jets. Listen up. I, I got a word for you. Are you ready? So Simon says, go ahead, teacher. In verse 41, then Jesus told him a story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose, Simon, loved him more after that? And I'm guessing Simon was scratching his beard. Hmm. Oh, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the first time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she's anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, Simon, her sins, and, and listen to these, the, the, these next four words, and her sins, and they are many. Let me take back the mirror. If we could all hold one right now, you know what we would hear Jesus say? And your sins, they are many. If I held it up in front of Chuck, you know it would be right here. And, and, and Chuck, your sins are many. And her sins, they are many have been forgiven. So she's shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. And then Jesus turned to the woman. Remember who the woman is now, and here's what he says. Your sins are forgiven. It's all about love. It's a matter of the heart. But don't, don't miss this critical point Jesus makes to all of us in his red letters. If you truly recognize how much it costs God to forgive you, it ought to flood your heart with love for God and others who need the same like this woman. You just be broken before him, weeping, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I, I am broken before you. But here's what I think happened. Go all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. And sin entered the world. And we lost it all. But God, who loves us, said, you know what, I, I know you've lost it all, but I... I'm going to send my son, and he's going to give his all for forgiveness of that sin. 
so that when you receive Jesus as your Lord, your Savior, your forgiver, your healer, you get it all. Life more abundant today, life eternal forever. And it was somewhere along the way in our affluence and in our wisdom and in our knowledge and in our American way, we think the fall, we, we lost a lot. We, we think Jesus may have given, well, you know, a lot. And I think we live and give in such a way that, well, what we get is a lot. But what happened when sin entered the world is we lost it all. When Jesus came, he didn't give us a lot. Jesus gave us his all. And when we receive his grace and his forgiveness, we get it all. Not a lot. You get it all. Then you know that you required a lot of forgiveness, a lot of grace, a lot of mercy. It cost him all so that we could have it all. I tell you her sins, and they were many, have been forgiven. It's all about love. It's all a matter of the heart. Not a love that ignores the mud and the damage that destroys the masterpiece God's building in your life, but a, but a love that recognizes how much mercy, how much grace a messed up person like me and a messed up person like you needs. That great love brings grace and truth together to give us hope to a broken world that needs forgiveness and restoration. We planned these services months in advance, and you know what my topic was today? My assigned topic to talk to you today was money. I was supposed to talk to you about Jesus' red letters and what he says about money. I had a great sermon lined up. I mean, I had three points. They were all alliterated. I had a story that you were going to cry about. I was going to make you feel guilty for not giving. Man, I, listen, I, I was going to show you videos that you would just go, aww. I was about done with that sermon, and often this happens to me, and I'm sitting there in my study at home, and it's like the Holy Spirit of God reached down and picked that big fat earlobe up and put his hands around my ear and said, Hey, Chuck, you know why you don't give like you're supposed to, Chuck? Come on, Lord, wait a minute. I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to tell people why they don't give like they're supposed to. This is my job. Come on, let me do my job. And then he cupped a little tighter and he said, Hey, Chuck. I'm trying to help you here. You know why you don't give the way you're supposed to give? Okay, Lord, what's up with that? Because you forgot. You lost it all. You forgot. Jesus gave it all. You forgot. You can have it all. Not a lot. Not some. Not a portion. All. Why don't you give that way? Let me pour my best out on you. Why don't you? Why don't you stop finding fault with everybody else? And why don't? Why don't you remember that saying, "Love the sinner and hate the sin"? And and then it was like Jesus put a mirror in front of me and said, 
why don't you deal with this sin before you deal with their sin? I sat there a little broken. No, I sat there beat up. And I thought to myself, if that's not, if that's how I'm given, I wonder if anybody else is in that boat. And I forgot about the all. Today, maybe, maybe you've never said, Jesus, I need you. Come be my Lord, be my Savior. Maybe you're, you're a Zacchaeus and in your life, Jesus looks up in your tree today and says, come on down, I'm going to your house. Maybe she say, Jesus, I need you. Maybe today you've made a mess of your life. And you just need a drink from living water. Maybe today you, you need to get on your knees before Jesus and love him and seek forgiveness in your life. Maybe today you, you need to give. I don't know. I do know this. This world is not as he intended it to be. And I'm part of the reason it's not. Can I just state the obvious? You're part of that reason too. And I believe he longs for us to change our heart. To allow him to move and change and massage our heart so that our minds and our actions match up with what he's doing. And I believe he wants to do that from the inside out. He don't want to change our actions and change your looks. He wants your heart. He didn't want you to try to fix your life before you come to him. He, he, just, wants, he just wants your heart. He, he knows all your junk, and he just wants your heart. And Jesus wants to come inside and fix you from the inside so the outside begins to look and act more like him. But it all starts with a heart.